All right, well, you see the big stack of cash on the picture up there. Some old coins. Who gives the most? Luke 21, 1 through 4. So that's where we're going to be heading to this morning. Ten years ago, when Calvary Bible Church was looking for a pastor teacher, after two years of searching in vain, they uh, met with John MacArthur and uh, the search committee, you know, said, do, do you know of anybody? And he gave them one name uh, of this guy. He said, this Jack Hughes guy is just enough of a maverick to be able to minister in the shadow of Grace Community Church. Now, if you don't know what a maverick is, it's kind of an independently minded person who doesn't uh, cave into peer pressure or readily conform to the expectations of others. I am that person. Uh, but the question is, why would, you know, why would John say, well, let's get him a maverick, you know? Uh, Calvary needs a maverick. Uh, well, because... John MacArthur's ministry is worldwide, and he has huge sway among biblical expositors. And I think John knows that, you know, he doesn't want to produce another Grace Community Church. Um, A lot of people do, but he doesn't want to do that. Um, I don't want to do that. And, uh, And so that's why I think I ended up, you know, being the name that was uh, put across. And of course, uh, um, because John has accomplished so much and his writing and his preaching ministry is worldwide, you know, there's some people who just want to just do everything. Whatever he believes is what I believe. And, you know, whatever, however he interprets everything, I interpret it that way. Um, and, you know, I admire John greatly. He's, uh, you know, my boss at the seminary. He's my favorite preacher. I owe much of what I know to his ministry. But his interpretations aren't always mine. And uh, that's just the way it is. And this morning is such a case in point. Um, John finished preaching Luke, of course, uh, a while back. And so a lot of you have listened to his sermons on Luke. And, and periodically I get comments from people wanting to make sure I interpret the text like John. Um, I just want you to know I have no desire whatsoever to interpret the text like John. I don't interpret the text to try and please any man. I do it for the glory of God and that alone. And so I study every passage hard, uh, be assured, I do my homework, I, don't, I have never stepped into this pulpit unprepared, and Lord willing, I never will. Um, I take it very seriously. And so when John came to this text, he took a very unique view of the widow and her two mites, preached it to his congregation, and then he preached it to the shepherd's conference. And so a lot of people instantly switched over um, to this unique view that nobody has taken in 2,000 years of church history. Uh, and I just think it's not the best one. So I just want you to know, uh, when we get to heaven, I think John will change his view. <laughs> right now, he hasn't. Now, just so you know, there's some different kinds of interpret- interpretive differences. First, there's the kind of interpretive difference where you actually produce a false doctrine. You teach something that's untrue. This, of course, would be the worst kind of interpretive uh, misinterpretation. Second, there are sometimes where you might um, foist some meaning upon a text that isn't there, read something that is, either isn't implicit in the text or explicit in the text, and wrongly read that in. 
Uh, and it's not really there. And though your doctrine may be sound, your interpretation uh, may mishandle the text. And in that way, um, that's kind of the second kind of worst degree of misinterpretation. Thirdly, there are oftentimes when you come to a text... You look at it within its context and you discover that, you know what, there are, there are several good interpretations which seem to fit the context and though every interpretation has kind of pros and cons, um, I think this one is the best and it may not be the best one because only one of those can be true. And so this happens virtually every week of my life. Uh, when I am studying a passage and I'm plowing through commentary after commentary and resource after resource, every week I find people who disagree with me. Every week. And uh, it's just the way it is. But usually they fall into this category. The, the doctrine is sound. They're taking it out of the context. But I just think it's a weaker view. And so as we come to Luke uh, 21 uh, this morning, I just want you to know there is some pressure to kind of go in this other way, which I'm not going. So uh, we will answer uh, John MacArthur's unique view, and uh, just because uh, he has a large presence close by, uh, but just so you know, um, I don't ever try to align myself with any system or any person. So be assured, um, I am a maverick. (laughs) All right, Jesus is on the Temple Mount. It's either Tuesday or Wednesday. We can't be sure. Probably Wednesday, but maybe still Tuesday. Um, The chronology, it doesn't say Tuesday, Wednesday. It just says, you know, it just seems like this is all happening the same day. But it's very likely this is the the Tuesday or Wednesday right before Jesus is arrested and crucified. Um, And so this is like the end of his life here on earth. Um, He's been preaching the gospel, teaching the disciples, confronting the religious leaders, uh, trying to evangelize the lost. He's doing all these things. The fair the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the priests are all out to get him. And they're out to get him because what's happened is, is um, there is this um, hatred that they have towards Jesus because Jesus isn't submitting to their authority. He's kind of his own maverick. And um, Jesus is doing his own thing. He's not getting permission to drive the money changers off the temple mount. He's not getting permission to preach. He's calling himself the Messiah. He's gathering huge crowds of people who think he's the Messiah. And this is disturbing them greatly. Not only that, he's exposing their religious hypocrisy. So what do you need to understand is that when Jesus is on the Temple Mount this last week of his life on this day. He's orchestrating many things. It, it may appear that Jesus is just kind of meeting opposition and, and he's kind of frustrated. That could be uh, this is the furthest from the truth because he's got things in control. He is defending the honor of God and the proper use of the Temple Mount by driving away the merchants and the sacrifice sellers. He is exposing religious hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, the whole Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council who are up there because he wants them to see their sin and their error so that they will come to repentance and faith. He's also uh, preparing his disciples uh, for his soon departure. And he's also just in general trying to evangelize the lost. So all of these things are going on. Jesus is provoking them to the place where they're just like, well, we're just going to kill him. 
He's bringing about his own death with his confrontation on these last couple days on the Temple Mount. Well, Jesus, uh, after he drives off the merchants, of course, and, uh, if you, you know, back in the end of 18, and, and he then gives the parable of the wicked vine growers in chapter 20, which, you know, his punchline is, you guys are doing just like your fathers did. They persecuted the prophets and killed them, and you are persecuting your Messiah, and you're gonna kill him. And then the scribes and the chief priests attack him about the question about paying taxes. And Sadducees ask a question about the resurrection. Jesus throws a counterpunch, bringing them to Psalm 110 to bring them face to face with the fact that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. All of this makes them very angry. And then in the middle of this, Jesus stops. He then turns to his disciples, though the religious leaders in the crowd is listening, and he warns his disciples of the hypocrisy of the scribes who are self-exalting and self-promoting. They're walking around in religious robes, their religious costumes, seeking accolades, seeking chief seats, seeking position, seeking power. They're doing all of this, and though they appear very righteous and religious on the outside jesus says they are devouring widows houses that's how they're gaining some of their wealth and even though they should have offered their law services to the widows for free they're yet extracting money from them reducing them to poverty and therefore they will receive a greater condemnation at the end of chapter 20 they are poster children for proverbs 10 2 uh, speaks against ill-gotten gain Keep in mind, it's also the Passover week. So it's not a normal week up there. People from all over the Mediterranean world have journeyed huge distances to come and worship and be on that Temple Mount. It's packed out with people. Um, Humanity just there to offer sacrifices to the Lord in accordance with the law of Moses. And so all of that's happening. Also, keep in mind that... Luke, the end of Luke 20 ends Jesus' public ministry. That's it. Jesus has done his best to evangelize these stubborn and stiff-necked people. And though he has led some to saving faith, many are rejecting him. And it's it. It's like, you know, Ichabod now is written again. The glory has departed. And Jesus, the light of the world, will never again speak publicly to the masses. He will only speak publicly at his trial before Pilate and just a few words the rest of what he says he says to his disciples to equip them for the future his death and after that and so please follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke 21 1 through 4 and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this text. And I thank you that it is so wonderful and teaches us just some very sweet and encouraging truths about giving. Father, may we receive these truths. May they affect our lives and may they instruct our giving so that we may give to you 
for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at three observations about giving to help us give to the glory of God. And the first is, the rich give much. Look at verse 20, uh, chapter one, or verse 1 of chapter 21. He, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Now Luke starts off with and, indicating that's the same day. It's going along. And notice it says, and, and he looked up, which tells us what? He was looking down. Um, so the question is, well, why was he looking down? Well, thankfully, there's a parallel text in Mark chapter 12. And in verse 41, Mark says, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. So what has happened is Jesus frustrated, Jesus tired, Jesus tired of wrangling, tired of being, you know, uh, attempting to be ensnared and caught and confronted and, and counter punching and the hard hearts and the rejection, uh, you know, in spite of all the miracles surrounding John the Baptist's birth, uh, uh, in spite of John the Baptist's ministry itself, in spite of the miracles about his birth, in spite of, of the, the ministry that he's had for three years doing miracles, teaching and preaching, in spite of all the prophets he's to point to him as the messiah the son of god they have for the most part rejected him and have not come to repentance he has come to seek and save the lost and they will not be found and this of course is discouraging so dejected jesus sits down looks at the ground between his knees probably utters a prayer who knows and he knows he will never be preaching to the masses again just imagine that this is it he's finished with them No longer will he preach to them again. The light of the world is going to be turned off for that generation as Jesus is crucified and ascends into heaven. And as Jesus sat there, Luke 21 verse 1 says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Mark notes that they were putting in large sums. Now, according to Alfred Edersheim in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus sat down and he's watching the multitudes um, uh, in the court of the women. The court of the women was the largest court on the outside. There was the court of the men and inside the court of the men was the temple itself. And so the court of the women was really the only place where it was lawful to sit down. So we know that's where he was. The court of the women could contain more than 15,000 worshipers. And probably on that day, there were close to that many, maybe even more. He states, quote, provision was made for receiving religious and charitable contributions. All along, these gondolas were the 13 trumpet-shaped boxes, shafaroth, These trumpets bore inscriptions marking the objects of the contribution, end quote. In other words, you could have designated giving in 13 different categories. There were these offering boxes with trumpet-shaped mouths on them that you could put your offering in. Now, uh, if you've uh, ever worked with wood, it's very difficult to make a trumpet-shaped anything out of wood unless you have a big lathe or something. So most likely these are made out of metal. Now, you can imagine what that would mean. It would mean that everybody put their money in there. You would hear it go in. It would be like this big, you know, it would clinkle, dinkle, clang. 
in. It would go. And so in one respect, because there was no cash currency at that time, if you were to go to the you know, give your offering. Uh, you, you don't aren't throw any cash, which wouldn't make any noise. You would throw in coins, which would always make noise. So your offering in one respect would be declared by how much clinking and clanking there was, right? That people would be able to hear you offer in. I mean, if you went in and it went kink, they'd go, huh? You know, oh, that's too bad. And some other guy, you know, he dumps in, you know, and you hear this big cascade of money going in. And so this, of course, gave the opportunity for religious hypocrites to really go for it and really make people think they were great givers. Jesus actually speaks against this in Matthew 6, 2, where he says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men truly i say to you they have their reward in full giving to the temple treasury was literally to sound the trumpet because you had your put your money into this trumpet shaped receptacle and people could hear you give so there was some sort of audio affirmation of the size of your offering and of course the religious leaders did that on purpose because Religious leaders want to get more money. And now they have devised a system, though the giving is good, they have devised a system to kind of pressure people into giving more. Because who wants to go up there and get clink when everybody's listening? You would be pressured. There would be some compulsion there to make more clinking in your offering. Edersheim points out that these boxes, uh, at these boxes, a priest stood as part of the uh, kind of a superintendent of offerings, mostly for the offerings of the poor and of, of widows. Why is that? Well, because let's say you were a poor widow and you wanted to, uh, let's say, offer up a, a pigeon or a turtle dove. How would you do that? Well, as a woman, you could not go into the court of the men and approach the altar and give your sacrifice directly to a priest who was operating there this the 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 altar at the time of the sacrifice so because you had to stay in the court of the women you would go up show the priest the superintendent your offering and throw your coins into the offering he then would make a notation of that and at the time of the offering he would offer up an offering for the gift that you gave And so that is why, uh, that is really what's going on here as Jesus sits down and he observes this widow putting in these couple mites. So he sees the rich obeying the law of Moses, at least outwardly, uh, each was giving to the Lord either required offerings or free will offerings as uh, the law of Moses instructed. If you lived far from Jerusalem, you can imagine why there might be large sums. This is a pilgrim feast, remember, which means the people are coming from large distances. Let's say you had a very prosperous business as a Jew in Corinth or Ephesus or some other place like that. Well, you wouldn't be able to come and give your offerings frequently, so you would save up. And at those pilgrim feasts, you would make your journey. And of course, when you approach the trumpet, you know, you would be putting in a lot and you would be, you know, people would know, whoa, listen to that. Um, That guy's putting in a huge amount of money. But notice that Jesus doesn't condemn or commend the rich for giving. He doesn't really say who they are either. He merely states some were giving large sums, which would be the right thing to do if you were rich 
because the rich receive more from God, more is required. So that is all fine. So that's what we learn. Rich, we're putting money in. Secondly, the poor give little. Look at verse 2. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. The word translated poor means destitute, impoverished. She was very poor. And yet, out of her poverty, she gave two little copper coins that was probably valued about one penny. One penny. Uh, Not enough to live off of, not even enough to purchase a decent meal. Just two little tiny copper coins. Notice the text says nothing explicitly about her motive or her reason she gave, only that she gave the tiniest of offerings. She may be a pilgrim who traveled from afar, clutching these two things, scrimping and saving so she could honor God, or she may be a local poor beggar woman in Jerusalem. We don't know anything about her. What is clear are two things. She was very poor, and two, she gave this tiny little offering. Two small copper coins that were valued at about a sin. Now, it's human nature and not the best part of human nature to kind of compare ourselves. Maybe you find yourself doing this. Um, it's just kind of the way we are. Um, we a lot of times like to compare ourselves with others because if we, it makes us feel good. Well, at least I'm doing this and they're not. We might not know why they're doing it and we may be doing it for the wrong motives, but we just like to compare And this is why giving is to be done anonymously. This is why giving is to be done discreetly. This is why you don't come to me with your check. I don't want it. You give it to one of the deacons, one of the ushers, but don't give it to me. Um, I don't want to know. And and one of the things that happens here is, uh, you know, you can imagine that that if you were at the temple that day and you were going to give, you know, some offering, you were not a rich person and you traveled to Jerusalem and it costs you quite a bit just to get there. And you now have this little bit that you have to offer. It's a sacrifice for you. It's a huge sacrifice to you, but it's hardly anything. Maybe just a, a few little silver coins. And you're waiting in line. Now, there's this merchant who has big business, uh, you know, somewhere. And uh, he he has also come. And you kind of notice that he pulls out this ragger hefty bag because he's kind of bent over. And he begins to reach into it and grab handfuls of gold coins, plucking them in. You know, the priest's eyes are popped out. And he's like, whoa. And he's throwing in these big chunks of cash. And you're back there with your three little... Silver things. Then he leaves and you go up there and you plink in your offering. Now, compared to the guy in front of you, you may be thinking, oh man, I wish I could give more. I, I wish I could, you know, give like that guy gives. I just don't have, I just don't have it. You know, one thing I never, I never try to do is give under compulsion. Should never give under compulsion. That's bad. It doesn't honor God. God says not to do it. He commands you not to do it. And, you know, I, sometimes I get invited to various fundraisers, you know. It's uh, one of the things of being a pastor. You kind of get thrown into these banquet circuits. And um, you, sometimes you just get asked to go to place to place. And, 
And, you know, I have had all sorts of people cajoling and manipulating and, you know, acting as if their single cause was like the only cause that anybody might be able to ever give to. Uh, they ask everyone to, you know, get out their checkbooks after some heart wrenching plea and, and, you know, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving and people are feeling under compulsion and everybody around the table's doing it and you can't kind of get away. It's not a private thing. And so everybody's kind of, you know, writing down the Bible says we're not to give that way. Never give that way. And so Lisa and I, we just made up our mind that we're never going to do that. So we just sit there, we wait, and afterwards, when emotions have subsided, we talk about it, we consider it, we consider other things we might give to, and then we make a cool, rational decision, not an impulsive, emotional decision under compulsion. Now, you can imagine... After being, you know, fed some lavish meal, after seeing a marvelous presentation and after some, you know, heart wrenching um, plea for money. Sitting at a table with a bunch of people writing checks. There is some pressure there to give, isn't there? And, uh, you know, uh, you know, you just I just imagine them saying, oh, look at Pastor Jack. He, he's pastor of Calvary Bible Church. He didn't give anything. Hopefully, they will never see me give anything. I would give online if they didn't charge a fee to do that to the church. Just so no one would ever see me give but God alone. Because that's what the scriptures want us to do. They do not want us to be giving in order to be seen by men. And so the problem is, is the religious leaders who are in charge of the Temple Mount have now constructed this system, which though looking pious, it does tend to promote compulsory giving because it sounds off when you put in your money. Now, the rich who were up there would have been fine and right before God to take some of the money they were going to give to God and just hand it to the widow. Because the scriptures have so many texts saying, support the widow, feed the widow, defend the widow. We looked at them last week when we were looking at orphans. Every one of those texts also mentioned widows. And you could imagine that the woman, when she went up there with her two little copper coins, I mean, it'd be like you going up and putting a penny in the offering plate. You know, uh, you know, the offering plate's coming down. Some guy puts a big wad of cash in and you get in, you throw in your penny. I mean, you would think, well, that's not very much. And he'd be thinking, why even bother, pal? You would have, a, you would have the temptation to look down on somebody else because they gave so little when you're not even supposed to know how much they gave. What if one Sunday they took the offering and all the guys get in the back and they're all standing there and they're looking at their empty plates and in one plate there's a single penny. Think about that. One penny. I mean, what would happen? Well, all the money crunchers here, Don would be like, ah, you know, we only got a penny this Sunday. And you can't pay bills with a penny. It wouldn't be worth the trip to go to the bank. About you spend $3 worth of gas getting into the bank. And, you know, another 25 cents filling out forms. Plus the time. I mean, it's just, 
It, a penny would be insignificant. Why even throw it into the plate? But what if the person who put that penny in that Sunday was homeless, had no job, had no possessions except the clothes on their body, was hungry, and yet out of love to God, out of devotion to God, said, you know what? This penny is all I have, and though it's not worth very much, and I can't really buy anything, I can't even buy a piece of bubble gum with it, and maybe, you know, I could save it and add something to it and buy something later. I'm just going to give it to the Lord. Now, in God's sight, that would be a huge gift. In the eyes of men, in the eyes of the number crunchers, it would be a crisis. But in the eyes of God, it would be a huge, huge offering. God would be going, Calvary Bible Church just received the greatest offering on any Sunday in its history. And we'd be going, what are we going to do? We got a penny. Do you see that? That this is what Jesus is trying to teach, which brings us to our third point. The poor widow gave most. Look at the end of verse three and also verse four. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Now, this must have just been a shocker. They must have thought, what did he just say? What did he just say? This is the punchline, the purpose, the emphasis of the text. Whatever is the meaning, it must align itself with this statement. This is the hammer of the passage. When Jesus says truly, he's saying indeed, verily, listen up. This is really important. This is why I called you over. And he says, this poor woman put in more than all of them, not all of them individually, but all of them combined. Think of all the people who were up on the temple mount that day. He put, she put in more than all of them, Jesus says. And this is the main point. The grammar demands it. Her gift was greater than all. Now, the question that begs to be asked is, well, how so? How so? Well, not In the eyes of men. In the eyes of men, of course, it was not the greatest gift. It was pretty much worthless and insignificant. Men would see her gift as just a pittance. But in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of God, it was greater than all. It was a greater sacrifice. She put in more than all of them. Not in monetary Greatness, but in the eyes of God, greatness. Jesus explains, look at verse 4. For they, the rich, put in large sums out of all their surplus. They put into the offering. Stop there. Someone's a millionaire. They decide to give 10%. You know, they plunk down $100,000 into the offering plate. And Don is like, yeah, you know, it's like, whoa. It's a huge gift. And we would think that would be an amazing offering. But really, the guy's only taken 10% out of his massive surplus. Though it is a huge monetary gift, it would not be worth as much. Here it is. In the eyes of God, in a spiritual sense, 
than a tiny gift of all one had. God blesses sacrificial giving. This is what Paul commends in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, where he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. He goes, brethren, I just want to tell you about these churches in Macedonia. This is amazing. That in the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave Of their own accord. Paul here says. I just want to lift up the Macedonians to you as an example. These people are in deep poverty. They're being persecuted. They not only gave to their means. But gave beyond their means. And this glorifies God. He says They were deeply impoverished. He didn't say, oh, and they shouldn't have done that. It glorified God. It was not commanded that they do it. You don't have to do it. But if you do do it because you love the Lord and the reasons and the motives, and it's according to his word for the right purposes, it's great. And so Paul commends it. But great sacrifice alone is not enough. One's heart must be right. If your heart isn't right, if you're not doing it according to God's word, God isn't pleased with that. But sacrifice matters. You remember when David was was going to purchase the temple mount, at first he was offered it for free, but he says, no, I'm going to buy it. So it hurts me financially because I am not going to give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In Luke chapter 7, verses 37 through 46, there is the story of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with very costly perfume and a very similar instance which happened just maybe a day or two before this instance here up in the Temple Mount when Mary, the sinner, took out that very costly uh, bottle of perfume and poured it on Jesus. And it was worth a huge amount of money. And one of the gospel writers says, yeah, and you know, Judas is saying, man, we should have sold that and give it to the poor because he wanted to get the money for it. But it was not wasted. Her huge sacrifice was not wasted. She was commended. And Jesus said her name's going to be in this book for all generations so they didn't know his, her sacrifice. God was well pleased with that. You see, a millionaire isn't making a great sacrifice because he is forced to live off 900 shekels after giving 100,000. He gave some out of his great surplus, which is not really a huge sacrifice at all. The rich, compared to the poor, usually give very little in God's sight. Now, here's just a great bit of encouragement for you who are of little means. God's whole reckoning is way different than man's. God's not looking necessarily for a volume. You know, you may be a college student and think, man, I hardly have any money, man. I am just scrimping by. I, you know, and you may think, well, I'm just going to give up my Starbucks for this morning's offering. Or, you know, I haven't 
had a hamburger in months and I love hamburgers and and I've been eating peanut butter and jelly until it's coming out my nose and and I'm so tired of it but I am going to give what little money I was going to use to that to this thing and you know what God may see an offering like that as greater than everybody else's offering combined. There may be some little kid over there who loves the Lord and who has a quarter and has been hanging on to that quarter because he wants to buy some toy or something and thinks, um, Mom, Dad, I think I'm going to give this to Jesus. Say, like, well, you do that, son. If you think that's right, you just do that. And so he gives that in there. He may, that little tyke may have put in more in God's sight than all of us combined. That is the encouragement. Do not despise the day of small things because in God's sight, the degree of sacrifice does matter. Look at the middle of verse four. But she, the widow, out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. This, Jesus clearly states, is the reason she gave more than anyone else. This is Jesus' explanation. Why did she give more than everyone else? Because she was poor and out of her poverty, not her surplus, she gave all she had. And so it was huge in the sight of God. This is the point of the text. Jesus means to teach us that when men, what men think often is a great sacrifice to God in God's eyes may not be. And what men often think is a tiny little sacrifice to God, it may be huge. That is the cool thing that Jesus is teaching here. Jesus said, no greater expression of love can be found in this than a man what? Lay down his life for another. In other words, that would be the greatest sacrifice is the greatest expression of love. So whatever is greatest would be the greatest expression of love to God and one's neighbor. Jesus made that perfectly clear when he said that. To lay down your life is an ultimate sacrifice, and that's what he did for us. Now, interpreters agree, pretty much universally, that Jesus is commending this widow's offering as God-honoring. I read 40 resources which all agree on this single point. Now, why? Why do they agree on this point? Because it's the obvious meaning of the text. If you just read it, that's what it seems to be teaching. Jesus is commending this widow for her great sacrifice. Second, because of another interpretive principle called the checking principle, which states that when, when you go to a passage and you interpret it, you should then check your interpretation with other interpreters and scholars who have come before you. Why? Because if nobody's come up with your interpretation in the last 2,000 years, it's probably wrong. Not necessarily wrong, but most likely. So if you deviate from this one point, you instantly have to go against the obvious meaning, the easiest reading, and the checking principle. Well... As I noted earlier, John MacArthur, along with one Roman Catholic interpreter that I was able to find, and Marvin Pate of the Moody Gospel Commentary on Luke, go against the flow of how they uh, understand this text. So 
So right off the bat, the bat, their view is suspect because it's going against really 2,000 years of how people have understood this text. But what's their take on it? It's this. It's that Jesus is not pleased with the widow's offering. Yes, uh, it is a great sacrifice that she is giving because she's giving all she had, but God wasn't pleased with it. And as a fact, Jesus wasn't uh, pleased with her at all. He's even angry at her for what she is doing. No widow should ever give all she has to the Lord. That would just be wrong. It shows that she is a duped victim of a corrupt religious system that has reduced her to poverty. And Jesus is saying the scribes devour the widow's houses and look at that poor woman. She's buying into it. She thinks that her offering is going to gain her salvation. Marvin Pate expresses this view saying, quote, Jesus's comments on the widow's offering in the temple, uh, chapter 21, verses one through four, serve as an apt commentary on his previous criticism of the scribes, chapter 20, verses 45 through 47, especially verse 47, the scribes devour the widow, the houses of widows. As such, Jesus's words function more as a lament over the widow's situation than as a praise for her naive self-sacrifice. Because of the religious authorities of her day, the poor widow gave up her last penny and so was victimized for the profit of an oppressive religious system. Unfortunately, such injustices continue today. Her house was indeed devoured by the religious establishment. That being the case, Luke has not placed the incident of the widow's offering before the prediction of the fall of Jerusalem um, temple verses five through 38 haphazardly. It was the temple's religious system in the hands of the Jewish authorities that treated the poor unjustly and that contributed to its demise in AD 70 and quote. So this interpretation does consider both the near and following context, which is good. It correctly notes that Luke did not put the text here haphazardly, which, of course, could be said about any text in the Bible, since it's all inspired. Uh, it could be, um, you know, noted that, um, yes, uh, the Jewish authorities were treating, some of them were treating the widows unjustly. And no doubt that contributed to the fall of Jerusalem. All these things are true. They're stated right there in the text. However, Pate reads a lot into the text that just isn't there. And make statements that collide with what is there. The text doesn't say Jesus lamented the widow's offering. And who says that obeying the law of Moses and that self-sacrifice is naive? Pate does, but not God. God commends it. God encourages it. God commands it. The text doesn't tell us she gave up her last penny to the temple treasury because of some oppressive religious system. It doesn't tell us she was the victim of these scribes, that she was reduced to poverty by them. The emphasis of the text is that she being poor gave out of her poverty sacrificially. The rich gave out of their surplus. Therefore, in God's eyes, her gift was greater. That is the emphasis of the text. That's what it says. The text does not say that 
Jesus is somehow displeased with her and that she is really sinning to a greater degree than they are because she is doing this thing, giving all she had, so duped by these religious leaders. Now, it's true that nowhere in the Bible does God ever condemn a widow. Now, granted, if you take this view, you would have to say this is the unique case where God actually condemns a poor widow for being a poor widow in offering to the Lord a great sacrifice. And we saw last week that God has a special place in his heart for widows. So it would be highly unlikely, I think, against every single occurrence of widows that this would be the unique one where God says, listen, this widow blew it. Secondly, it's argued that God never asks anyone to give all they have and certainly would not want this widow to give all she had. This just isn't true. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus mentions the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. You remember the story? Elisha shows up. The widow is poor, dirt poor. She has a son. She only has food for one more meal. And she's planning on eating it and then dying. And what happens? Elisha says, give it all to me, the prophet of the Lord. Under the command of the Lord, he says, I want you to tell this woman to give it all. And she does. And then what happens? God provides. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 to 33, Jesus speaks of the total commitment that is needed to be his disciple. Remember, he talks about hating fathers and mothers and children and brothers and sisters, your dearest relationships to carry your cross, to die to self, or you cannot be his disciple. Do you remember that? And do you remember what he says at the very end of that section? Let me remind you, Luke 14, 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Now, we talked about Jesus is emphasizing total commitment. There must be a desire, a willingness that if God so asks, you'll give all to him. Not that he wants us to all take a vow of poverty, but if he asks us to, we would. We can't have anything above him. The widow had one sin, hardly enough to buy anything with. And out of the goodness of her heart, she gave it to the Lord. And... Jesus said her sacrifice was great. Jesus told the rich young ruler in Luke 18, verse 22, one thing you still lack. Go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Again, emphasizing what? Total commitment. I want you to put me before your money. I want you to be able to walk away from everything you have. I want you to be willing to be reduced to abject poverty and trust me if necessary. Are you willing to do that? He was not. It is argued that the traditional interpretation does not fit the context. Well, yes, it does. Look at Luke chapter 20, verses 46 and 47. Here Jesus warns the disciples... And us about religious hypocrisy of these scribes who pretending to be righteous devour widows houses. Their wealth in part was gained by unjust means and they will be judged for that according to verse 47. Thus when they gave their large sums to God sounding their trumpet dribbling their coins into the treasury box. It would appear to most that these men who are of great means were giving a great sacrifice to God. 
I mean, they had the robes, they had the look, they had the education, they had the respect, and they went up there and clinkle, 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 and they kind of, you know, get all their gold coins and have them, you know, traded in for widow's might so they can really put on a show. Jesus wants his disciples to know the truth. So he walks away from the scribes, from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, from the Herodians, from the fickle crowds. He walks away from them, dejected because of the rejection of him. And he sits down across from these offering trumpets. Mark chapter 12, verse 43, then says he calls his disciples over. Come here. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than everybody else. And let me tell you why. Because they all are giving their offerings out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, gave all she had. Thus, Jesus is showing his disciples that the monetary size of the offering is not all that matters. All that glitters is not necessarily gold in God's sight. The scribes, as mentioned in the near preceding context, got part of their wealth from devouring widows' houses. Therefore, if their offering looked great in the sight of men, in the sight of God, it was worth nothing. Thus, Jesus pronounces greater condemnation on the scribes at the end of chapter 20, verse 47, for gaining wealth by preying upon widows. And that is why Jesus goes on after our text in 21, verses 5 and following to explain while part of the reason why judgment is going to fall upon Jerusalem. And so the traditional interpretation fits best. The emphasis of the text and Jesus' explanation is that the widow gave more than everyone, thereby teaching the important lesson that though self-righteous men may appear to give great sacrifices to God, it's not always that case in God's sight. Example, the poor widow who gave more than everybody combined. Now, some people have extracted various lessons from this text. Let's just talk about them. Some see the story as teaching that it is not the monetary value of what we give, but the spirit in which our offering is made that matters. Now, this is true partially. Size does matter with God. To whom more is given, more is required. So God would expect, if you were blessed more, to give more. However, you have to have a right heart because even if you gave a lot as a rich person or comparatively speaking, gave a lot as a poor person, if your heart wasn't right, it wouldn't matter. So heart does matter, but it's not all that matters. Secondly, others have emphasized that it is not how much you give, but how much that is left over, which is what really matters. This true isn't quite right either. Why? Because if taken to its logical conclusion, it really leads to vows of poverty. It leads to this, that if the closer you reduce yourself to poverty in your giving, the more you give God glory and obey his will. Now, God doesn't ever require us to give all we 
have monetarily at a regular basis. We've looked at those texts where there are some instances where he says, I am looking for total commitment. And in some instances at the command of the Lord, he asked it. But in general, we are not required to give all we have. God doesn't want you. However, if you want to, for God honoring reasons, do so for his glory without violating any other biblical principles like failing to pay your debts, you can do that. If you have read the, the, the biographies of men and women uh, of the past, like uh, I think R.C. Chapman is one of them who had a huge estate, exceedingly wealthy. And so he decided to be a preacher. I think he gave all of it to the Lord. He got rid of every single penny of it. Now, was that dishonoring? No, he just said, you know, I don't want to trust my money. I want to minister trusting God. Paid all his bills and then trusted the Lord and the Lord provide for him. So God has shown himself faithful in that way many, many times. And keep in mind that the widow isn't asked to give all she had. She chose to give all she had. And notice, she's not taking a vow of poverty. She's giving up. The two little copper coins she had in her pocket that day. And in God's side, we can assume it was more pleasing than all the great gifts that were given out of a surplus because her sacrifice was greater. Think with me. Even if she was reduced to poverty, let's just assume this, that the text doesn't say this, that she was reduced to poverty by the wicked scribes. And let's just say she was a victim of a corrupt uh, religious system. Granted, the religious system was God. It was the men in the system who were corrupt. But let's just say she bought into this works righteousness thing or whatever that, you know, you have to give all you have and and they're going to take that money and use it for their wicked purposes. Now, if she is a victim, is God going to condemn her for being a victim? You know, when, when somebody is mugged and they're beat up and they're laying on the sidewalk and the police show up, they don't go, why did you get mugged? What's wrong with you? They're the victim. They're the victim. This widow, if she was a victim, though the text doesn't say she is, the justice and judgment of God would not fall upon her, but upon the religious leaders, which of course fits the context perfectly and three some have said the lesson here is that god is interested in giving a certain percentage according to our means in other words this would be kind of a flat rate if you make a hundred dollars ten percent a thousand dollars ten percent you know a million dollars ten percent everybody gives a percentage this isn't correct either why because if you had you know, if you had a million dollars left over after paying a taxes and you were to give 10% of that, you would be giving a little bit, having a very small sacrifice because then you'd be forced to live off of 900,000 a year. But let's just say that you, man, you stepped it up and you gave 75% and then you had to suffer with $250,000 to live a year, a year to live on. What a trial. But let's say you have a person who, after taxes, only makes $40,000 a year. 
and that person decides to give 75%, that would really hurt them. That would make it maybe impossible for them to live in Southern California. The degree of sacrifice would be greater. So percentage doesn't really work. For many have rightly noted that the text teaches that God is, and here it is, interested not in the portion of what we give alone, but the portion in proportion to what we have. The person with less will, of course, give less, but the person who has more should give more. Fifth and finally, I think the underlying theme of all of this is total commitment to God. Jesus is trying to save these people from hell. He is trying to get them to totally commit to him. Just a few days before, the huge crowds were saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were throwing their coats on the ground for his, his colt to walk on them and palm branches and leaves. And they were making this huge fuss about Jesus being the son of David, the Messiah, the promised king and redeemer of Israel. And yet these people haven't totally committed. They're willing to see what Jesus is going to do. And if he meets up to their expectation, they may commit later. And if not, no. But the widow demonstrated in her giving all that she was totally committed to God to take care of her. J.C. Ryle rightly notes, quote, We learn from these verses who Christ thinks gives most generously to religious causes. Christ looks at something more than the mere amount of men's gifts in measuring their liberality. He looks at the proportion which their gifts bear to their property. He looks at the degree of self-denial which their giving involves them in. He wants us to know that some people who appear to give much to religious causes in God's sight give very little. And that some who appear to give very little in God's sight give a great deal, end quote. John Calvin, I think, summarizes it so perfectly. I think he just nailed it perfectly. And he says this, quote, For the poor who appear not to have the power of doing good are encouraged by our Lord not to hesitate to express their affection cheerfully out of their slender means. For if they consecrate themselves, their offering, which appears to be mean and worthless, will not be less valuable than if they had presented all the treasures of Croesus. On the one hand, those who possess greater abundance and who have received from God larger communications are reminded that it is not enough if in the amount of their beneficence they greatly surpass the poor and common people because it is of less value in the sight of God that a rich man out of a vast heap should bestow a moderate sum than that a poor man by giving very little should exhaust his store. This widow must have been a person of no ordinary piety who rather than come empty into the presence of God chose to part with her own living. And our Lord applauds this sincerity because forgetting herself, she wished to testify that she and all that she possessed belonged to God. In like manner, the chief sacrifice which God requires from us 
is self-denial. As to the sacred offerings, it is probable that they were not at that time applied properly or to the lawful purposes. But as the service of the law was still in force, Christ does not reject them. And certainly the abuses of men could not prevent the sincere worshipers of God from doing what was holy and in accordance with the command of God when they offered for sacrifices and other pious uses, end quote. And he nails it. He hits everything in there. That's right. That is exactly right, I think. The Bible Exposition Commentary says, quote, When we sing, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. We are telling God that everything we have belongs to him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the story, and we thank you that... In it, we see Jesus' overarching love and commitment to people. We see his laboring on the Temple Mount to bring sinners to salvation, to correct error, to expose hypocrisy, not out of anger, but out of love for lost and deceived sinners. Father, we see the importance of not giving under compulsion, or comparing ourselves with others who give, but giving out of love to you because we do love you in proportion to how much you have blessed us with. May we do that. May we do it with cheerful hearts. May we give sacrificially for we know that pleases you. And Father, may every offering we give to you be an expression that we trust you with everything we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.